Would you open God's precious holy word to Galatians chapter 3? We're going to begin in verse 15. And we'll probably make it no further than verse 18 today. But for the rest of chapter 3, there is an extensive teaching from the Holy Spirit with how we are, first of all, connected to Abraham as believers and then what the law means to us. So this morning I want to bring you a message that I call God, Abraham, and me. I want to read this passage and then I want to make several points uh, based on these uh, verses 15 through 18. Brothers, I am speaking according to a man. So he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm humanly speaking here. Even a covenant of man having been ratified, no one sets aside or adds thereto. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. The, the subject matter here that we're getting into is the covenant of Abraham. But let me make a couple of comments here before we move on to the next uh, couple of verses. The study of the language that the scripture is given to us in is so important. And here Paul draws on the importance. He draws on the original text from the Hebrew. And if you go back or if you have an interlinear or whatever, you'll see that the promise is in the singular, that is, is to a seed. Now here, of course, Hebrew scholars will tell you that it can reference a seed collectively, uh, a seed of Israel as opposed to uh, a seed of Ishmael. I mean, you could look at it that way. But the Holy Spirit here, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, teaches us that the culmination of this covenant comes in Christ. The whole thing is centered in Christ. So when we go back to Genesis 12 and, and uh, Genesis 15, and we note the covenant that God made to Abraham, we learn here that the whole thing is really centered around Christ. So that's important to keep in mind as we move forward. Now this I say, the covenant having been confirmed beforehand by God. The law having come 430 years afterward does not annul so as to nullify the promise. The promise that God made to Abraham. Namely, because you have believed in me, God essentially said to Abraham, I have declared that you are righteous you are now forevermore going to stand before me righteous. You will stand in righteousness before me. So God then promises that every family of the earth is going to be touched 
with this promise, this blessing. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham through a promise. The word up here, uh, the word has granted it is how it, the, 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 is how the compound word is here. Kekaristai. Now the word charis is in there, which is the word for grace. So the word up there, you could say God grace gifted it to Abraham. That would be an appropriate translation of the Greek word, a grace gift. By grace, God called and then declared Abraham to be righteous forever. We learn later on in First Chronicles 16, I think, that the covenant is an eternal covenant. Of course, it comes from God beforehand by God. So with those things in mind, let me make uh, several points because this is going to lead us into the next points. And the whole thing is teaching us that there is one gospel And that one gospel is this. You are justified by grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. You don't have to do anything before you get saved. You don't have to do anything after you're saved to maintain your salvation. If God has convicted you and God draws you into that salvation, then God causes you, according to Peter, God God causes you to be born again. You're regenerated. You become a new person. And now your relationship with God is one that lives. And then sanctification sets us apart. And the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives as a pledge, Paul writes to the Ephesians, now enables us to be obedient. And now it's Christ in us living this life and giving us the unctions that we have. We start out as immature Christians and we grow in Christ. So the first thing, God made covenants. To me, according to Hebrews, it begins with what's called the eternal covenant. Now they're all eternal, but there is one in particular that is the eternal covenant Namely, the covenant that the Father made with the Son before the foundation of the world. Christ alludes to it in John, uh, in John's gospel, chapter 6, where he says, All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And all of those who come to me, I will never, ever cast them out. I've come to do the will of my Father. And so he goes on and he talks about how all that the father gives him, he'll never lose one and he'll raise him up at the last day. That's the will of the father. This is the covenant between the father and the son. Now that is something that is made before creation, before time space continuum. So this covenant now is is worked out in time through a series of covenants that God makes With his own. First of all, the Adamic covenant. God made a covenant with Adam. Now, it was a covenant of works, so to say, so to speak. It was a bilateral covenant. It was a it was a conditional covenant, and it was like this. Adam, 
All of this is yours. And there's the tree of life. The implication being, it's yours to take a bite of and eat forever, but do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do that, the deal's off. You will have broken the thing and you'll die. Well, we know what happened. And great was the fall of man. So the Adamic covenant is in a sense still in force because what Adam failed to do, Christ did. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin so that death has passed upon us all. But then we go on and we read how Christ has provided his righteousness to us, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, so that he who knew no sin was made to be sin in our behalf that we might become righteousness before God in him. Okay. So the Adamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ and all who are in Christ have access to that tree of life. But now we move on from there to, to the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah. That covenant was simply that it, we won't be destroyed by a flood anymore. God put a rainbow in the sky. But we are specifically focusing on the next covenant and what comes out of that. And that is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then transferred it to Isaac and to Jacob. This covenant was an unconditional covenant. It was a unilateral covenant. It was God doing everything. Abraham didn't do anything. God did it all. And God would make sure that the promise that he made to Abraham would be fulfilled. And in a sense, that promise is still being fulfilled and will carry itself on even through the, the millennial reign of Christ. So God has made covenants. The Abrahamic covenant was transferred to Isaac and then to Jacob. Um, after that was the Mosaic covenant. Now the covenant of the law is a covenant of works. It's bilateral. It's conditional. God says through the law, you do this and I'll do this. You behave this way and I will grant this to you. Then after that is the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David that uh, the throne of David would last forever and that the son of David would be seated on the throne and that this would be the kingdom that would never know an end and that Messiah would be enthroned over that kingdom. That's the Davidic covenant. Then comes the new covenant. The new covenant is the unconditional covenant that God made. It, it's defined in Jeremiah 31. Christ references it in the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. It is the covenant where God at the last will write his law on our hearts. He will deal with us inwardly and spiritually. That's the new covenant. And that sort of encapsulates all the other unconditional covenants. They all come to rest on the new covenant. So God has made covenants. Regarding the Abrahamic covenant, it's an unconditional covenant. 
Nothing was required of Abraham when God said to him, in you, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Nothing was required of Abraham when, uh, when God took him out on the sands of the sea and under the stars of heaven and made those promises. Unconditional promise. So this is a, a promise that God made which God himself would see to it that the promise was fulfilled. Now we're going to see in the course of this whole thing and it's just so much stuff I couldn't have, I couldn't have done it all in one message but well, I could have, but it wouldn't have, would have, been, would have become uncomfortable at some point. Um, but the, the, the thing is leading us to the fact that you and I are in that promise that God made to Abraham. It's an unconditional promise. It's an immutable. It can't be changed. Nothing can change an eternal covenant an, an unconditional covenant that God has made, that God has confirmed. Nothing can change that. It's also a covenant that's undeserved. I told you that nothing was required. It's a covenant of grace. Nothing was required of Abraham when the Bible says that God, that Abraham believed God and God credited him with righteousness. Abraham did nothing. Abraham couldn't do anything. He was, he was a lost Aramean. He was in the Chaldees. He was a Chaldean. He, he, was, he, was, he was a Gentile. He was a moon god worshiper until God called him. There was nothing he could do when God called him, I'll tell you. When God calls you and when God convicts you, God will get you. God's not like that insurance guy that's got that fish hook out there with a dollar on. Whoop, almost got it. Yeah, almost got it. That's not the way God is. He gives it to us, and it's an undeserving covenant. So it's in the sense of the Abrahamic covenants, covenant of grace. It's an eternal covenant. It's a timeless covenant. There is no time limit placed on the covenant. Now, Let's get more specific about the covenant that God made with Abraham. It is a covenant of faith. It is not a covenant of works. If we go back and read Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15, where God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Your descendants will be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky. And Abraham says he's an old man and, he's, and God has told him that his descendant is going to come from his body. He's going to, this, he's 99 years old. He's, he says, well, how, am I, how do I know this is going to happen? How are you going to do this? And here's what happens at that point. This is in Genesis 12 and this part begins somewhere, I mean Genesis 15 and begins around verse, I don't know, 7 or 8, verse 8 maybe. But uh, God says to Abraham, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a three-year-old heifer and I want you to get a, a three-year-old she-goat and a three-year-old ram and get a turtle dove and a pigeon. Cut them in half. Now this was a covenant 
This was the blood, the, the cutting of the covenant. This was the way they did it in those days. And this was a binding covenant. And, and those who would be bound to the covenant would pass through the middle of these animals that had been cut in half, would pass through the middle. And then, then each person to do his part. This is a covenant. But God put a deep sleep on Abraham. Abraham never was required to walk between those pieces of dead animals. He was in a deep sleep and God said to him, I'm going to do this for you. And then God sent a smoking firebrand or an oven and then a torch, a flaming torch through the middle. This was the presence of God that passed through the middle of those uh, torn up animals. And it was God himself alone making the, the covenant, cutting the covenant of himself. So, so God made a covenant with God in this sense and told Abraham, this is the promise and I'm taking care of it. Abraham didn't do a thing. So this was, his, this was a covenant of faith. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him. He was credited with righteousness. So when, when God said, I'm going to bless all the earth, all the families of the earth through your seed, you're going to be a mighty, there's going to be a mighty nation and other nations and all this stuff. Abraham just believed the word of God. And God essentially said to Abraham, forever you will be before me in righteousness. You will always stand before me as a righteous man, a justified man. And Abraham did not do a thing. Not one thing. As a matter of fact, if you, if you look at it, there were, no, there were no conditions placed on this thing, unlike the law of Moses. Now the contrast here. In our study that finishes out chapter three, we're not going to get to get all of it in today. But the contrast is between the covenant of faith and the covenant of works. The one of grace or faith and the one of, of law. The one of life and the one of death. The one of promise and the one of threats and intimidations. This is the contrast that has been made. But God's covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 15 is shown to us to be a covenant of faith. Believe that God says, believe the word of God. God covers you in his righteousness, period. Doesn't require anything. The covenant with Abraham cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. This is how Paul starts out this passage in verse 15. I'm speaking on a human level. Don't you know when there's a, when there's a covenant made, we don't come in here and change it or add things to it or whatever. It's, it's especially one that's been ratified by God as he starts out in, uh, in the passage. So the, Abra the Abrahamic covenant cannot be altered. It is fulfilled in Christ. Not seeds, not in the plural, Paul says, but in one, the seed, capital S. The Christ of God. All of the stuff 
that God is promising, everything that the world is, is engaged in and all that the elect of God through the ages are involved in rests in Christ. The whole thing is fulfilled in Christ. Now, under the law, so you had 500 years and then of just of, of God establishing, you know, the family and, and then calling out the nation, separating the nation. But then you had 1,500 years of people learning how sinful they were under the law. I've told you before, when the law was given, here, were, here was a tablet with 10 commandments and then chapter after chapter of ritual and ceremony and instruction with regard to giving uh, sacrifices because God knew they couldn't keep the law. And so they were, they then had to become identified with sin and had to understand themselves as sinners. So the question begs the question, here, this begs the question, did Israel know that they were sinners in need of a redeemer? Yes, they did with every with every slaughtering of every animal on the altar of sacrifice. It was acknowledged. That's how the temple or the tabernacle was designed. That's how the priesthood was designed. That's how the altars were uh, designed. And all of the rituals and ceremonies that were given by instruction from God. All of, so they understood their need of a savior. We'll learn more about what the law means to us, God willing, uh, next time. But the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ. It is a covenant of promise. Here it is. God says this to you. You believe it. God now grants you salvation, righteousness, justification. Standing righteous before God because all of the covenants were fulfilled in Christ. The covenant with Abraham cannot be nullified. 430 years later, the, the law comes. We'll see that, it, that it, was, it was added for a certain purpose. We get more into that next time. But what came 430 years later and, and it, I mean, I know if you look at the time of Abraham and you look at the time of the law, you're going to say, oh, that's more than 430 years. But the 430 years come from Exodus 12, which starts with the time that God transferred the covenant of Abraham to Jacob, to Isaac and then Jacob. So that's where it starts. That's why there are 430 years there. So the 430 years then passed and the law came, but it doesn't nullify the covenant that God made with Abraham. It, it doesn't invalidate the promise that God made with regard to faith, having faith in him. This is, this is explained as we get through the rest of this chapter. Finally, the salvation of God, I showed you that word there in the Greek text, is a grace gift, the inheritance the inheritance of God's people. It's a grace gift. 
Peter writes about our inheritance and how it can never be destroyed. It is an eternal thing that can never, ever be destroyed. And our home is in heaven. There was, a, there was an earthly promise to the Israelites about the land uh, that they were. You know, they still don't possess the land. I understand there's a nation of Israel. But I also understand that all the Gentiles are telling them what they can and cannot do. That's because Jesus is not on the throne yet there. So while we may live in a time where they are being gathered to the land, they only possess the land in accord with what the Gentiles, during the times of the Gentiles, tell them what they can and cannot do. Even to tell them what their capital city is or is not. Where their boundaries are or are not. We live in a, we live in a contemporary moment where uh, President Trump has given a, uh, a peace treaty of some sort and, and the land is divided here and there between Israel and Palestinians. My, my point being, that won't happen when Jesus is on the throne. It happens now because Jerusalem is being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. But salvation, our inheritance, a home in heaven, declared to be righteous, a son of Abraham, to live with God forever because God has declared it to be so through our faith in Christ plus nothing. Salvation is a grace gift. It is not something that is worked out through the law. Even, even, the, even the covenant of the law finds its end in Christ. The Davidic covenant finds its end in Christ as, as uh, the Messiah. The new covenant finally rests in Christ because Christ declared at the Lord's Supper this, this, my, this new covenant, this is in my blood. I'm, 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 I'm the one upon whom this rests and who, who pays the price for all of this. It is not a works gift. It is a grace gift. Paul continues to draw the contrast between what the Judaizers are trying to do to the Galatians with another gospel and what God has done with them already through the true gospel, the only gospel, there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. If you don't remember anything else, maybe I've said that phrase enough that you'll understand that the great message of the scripture is that only Christ can save us. There's not a thing that we can do to bring ourselves to salvation or to maintain our salvation. It is all in Christ. Christ died to save us. He lives to keep us as our great high priest in heaven and he's coming again for us and finally will gather us to himself and bring us at last to the great inheritance that is ours. So, this is kind of an introduction to this last part of chapter three where we fit in by our faith in Christ 
with regard to a covenant that, to the covenant that God made with Abraham and to the, to the covenant of works that God sent through Moses. We'll learn more about that, God willing, uh, next time. But suffice it to say and to understand that this covenant of faith established through Abraham has never been nullified by anything. It has been, it has been focused upon by other things later and a sharper focus on how we are saved only by our faith in Christ becomes clearer and clearer as we go through the scriptures such that as we study what the Apostle Paul wrote in a condemning fashion to the Galatians that there is nothing to be added to faith. Nothing. We, faith is a gift itself. The New Testament teaches us that we can't have faith. We're dead in, we're dead in trespass and sin. A dead person cannot exercise faith. God has to awaken us, give us the gift of faith, overwhelm us with his call to come to him and we step out of darkness into the light. God deposits his Holy Spirit in our lives and we begin the Christian walk and we grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the apostle writes elsewhere in the New Testament. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I will always say this as an appeal at the close of our service. There are three things that we need. Number one, we need to be saved. We can only be saved by faith in Christ. There's no other way. There's no works salvation. You can't add anything to grace or faith. We are saved only by faith in Christ. So our first great need is to be saved to take Jesus into our hearts, Jesus to be our savior. Number two, after that, we have a great need to be baptized because it's part of the great commission. When people become disciples, followers, learners of Christ, Christ says, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the third great need that we have is to be identified with a local body of believers to become part of that family in as close of a way as we can. Church membership. If, if God has convicted you of any of those three needs today, as you exit the service, we will have deacons and, and their wives in the prayer room and in the room next to the prayer room, just as you go out the doors here. Just step into those rooms and share that need or those needs with those deacons and let them, let them pray with you and explain what to do. All right. Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for letting us come together like this. Lord, you've blessed us in so many ways. We're thankful. Now we want to be obedient 
to how you lead us in the way to serve you. So I pray your blessings on Shiloh and I pray, oh God, that you'll keep us from harm and from illness and from sickness, that you'll strengthen us and give us direction and then give us the resources that we need so that we can accomplish the task to which you've called us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.